0: And it's also very clear that the market is able to rebound from literally the most historic like exchange-related disruptions and it rebounded really rather quickly. You know, so I mean I find this extremely shocking that, you know, knock on wood, we're on pace to hit all-time high again in option block fine.
1: Hi, I'm david Raquel, Director of Sales at Paradigm. Welcome to the big picture. Policy reverting.
2: So the obvious trade is always the expensive one to this care. whole
1: peak inflation a peak rates narrative peak fed which we've if been talking, talking a really about it's an expensive place to find out a crypto
0: ball a, a potentially fatal place to yeah, find the out. the crypto option markets are definitely showing some signs of life hey everyone welcome to the big picture my name is joe Cruy. i'm at paradigm in the weeds around everything crypto ball i'm here i'm joined here by sohan on our sales team in asia who joined us last week when we spoke to Carolina at Orbit as well as David, who's back from his brief hiatus after being in, Europe in Barcelona, right, David?
1: Barcelona, yeah, the uh, European Blockchain Conference. How was that? Yeah, it was good, man. It was, um, yeah, there was, a, there was a good vibe there. It was a good buzz. Um, if, if, if I compare it to some of the events I went to back in December, um, it certainly felt like crypto was back um, in quite a big way. Um, So no, yeah, it was cool. There's like a really good breadth of um, sort of attendees there. Um, It it was kind of a good reminder that there's a lot of money flowing into this space still. Um, Apparently as well, um, there was double, double the attendees from the previous year. So man bull market might might be back after all but um it was, it was good um it's good connecting with a lot of people there uh quite a few allocators there so yeah there's, there's still money coming into this place and like the appetite for blockchain seemed huge uh so yeah it was cool
0: well look i mean if you're if, if you're a vc or an investor in this space and you and you're you're looking to get in when you know the valuations are not are not crazy crazy 2021 sort of levels i mean this is this is kind of this is kind of the time if you're if you're an investor looking looking to get some exposure to the space so i'm sure there's a lot of guys there as well i mean because i mean as you said there's still a lot of really interesting things going on in the space and i mean luckily you know the the coins have have really rallied to just to start the year so some of that fervor it kind of feels at least in the options market that fervor is is starting to really come back
1: yeah yeah no it's great um And I I kind of feel like it's reinforced the idea that I had uh, post FTX that kind of anyone that was moving into the space kind of knew knew the risks, and um, you know they've been building for a while and and starting to you know put in place the infrastructure uh, to come into it. Um, So yeah, it was kind of reassuring just to to sort of meet with like some traditional sort of funds and stuff as well that were there who were building and. Yeah, like like some some like TradFire asset managers um who are still sort of big in Tradfire, but you know, building out crypto desks and things like that. Um yeah, it's quite interesting to speak to them and, and not not put off by what's gone on. But again, the focus was very much you know how how are we dealing with counterparty and credit risk? What are solutions to that? What are the custody solutions to that? Um, any other kind of prime broker solutions and credit intermediation? So it's very much kind of solution focused. Not our oh, crypto's dead. It was a big Ponzi. We knew it, and and let's forget about it. Um, so yeah, yeah, it was quite a good vibe. You can sit, you can probably tell I'm full of cold and like burnt the candle at both ends as well. So. <laughs> a little bit too much sangria and, uh, <laughs> and, it, and it <laughs> know, the party scene out know. there in
0: february right
1: i know i know the uh, weather was nice as well so that was cool all
0: right good well we'll we'll be back with with guests uh next week but i we thought we'd use this time to go over some of the more interesting crypto option block data that we've been looking at. We've here at Paradigm, we've really been starting to focus on like building out this sort of proprietary sort of data offering. What is data that at Paradigm we can present to the market that you can you cannot find anywhere else. So like what we'll do today is we'll we'll start a little bit more general and then we'll get more granular, right? Specifically we'll talk about, you know, the growth of the crypto option block volume into 2023, potentially what is explaining that growth what time what times of the days is and days of the weeks is block markets most busy you know what is the breakdown of multi-leg trades versus single leg volume so like consider what we're going to talk about today kind of as like a teaser to a quarterly report that is going to start coming um being published by paradigm that is include some of the data that we're going to talk about today but in that report we're also going to be including stats around like liquidity, you know, block liquidity or Greeks exposure by maturities and strikes. And as the, the viewers and, and our audience, we would love to hear in the comments uh either on Twitter or you or YouTube, wherever you're watching this, in terms of what are things that you would like to see that would be very valuable. So we'll we'll jump right into it. Let me share my screen. Well okay so this chart right here. So so block trading of Crypto options in 2022, as you can tell from the chart, it continued to to really thrive. You know, despite that the spot market turmoil. And for the for those that are you know potentially new to the podcast, what is an option block trade? Right, an option block trade it refers to a significant transaction of options contracts that are traded outside of public order books. On a privately negotiated basis but still settles on the exchange i.e deribit so a block trade on deribit must meet the minimum size requirement of 25 contracts of bitcoin or 250 contracts of ethereum in a single strategy and then of course use the pre-existing contracts that exist from the exchange so from the chart you can tell so paradigm option block volumes experienced tremendous growth in 2022 right so if you if we look at that chart so january 2022 we were at 150,000 Bitcoin notional, right? And then fast forward about a year later and we're basically triple that size, right? And so that last chart right there, so for February volumes, I mean, we're not, we're not fully through February yet. We're about three quarters uh, through at the time of recording. And we forecasted it through the rest of the month. And February is looking like it's gonna be another all-time high right? And overlaid on this chart as well is the one month realized vol that as you can tell, I mean, February, I mean, it's been decent, but it's still been quite low, right? And the month to date spot returns are pretty marginal as well, right? So this is, it's super promising, right? So volumes are increasing in option block contracts, even when the market isn't isn't too volatile. The spot peak to trough, I think, in Bitcoin over the month of February is only like 14%, right? Compared to January, we have this massive 40% rally. You, you, could, you could have made this argument like, look, yeah, we had this massive rally you know, people putting money to work at the beginning of the year. Of course, you're going to get outsized volumes. But when you look at the chart, right? January doesn't really look as much of an anomaly anymore, right? We have... Realized volume well, in February, that's fairly low, right? The market's not nearly as exciting as it was, right? The peak, to trough spot range is not that high. So, and the volumes are continuing to increase, which kind of tells us, I mean, of course, we're biased that this market is here to stay. And it's also very clear that the market is able to rebound from literally the most historic, like exchange related disruptions and it rebounded really rather quickly you know so i mean i find this extremely shocking that you know knock on wood we're on pace to hit all time high again in option block volumes what do you guys think
2: yeah i mean i i think i think one of the you know one of the ways you need to think about blocks is it's the more institutional size right i mean it's the non retail players so if if volume if um, if realized vol is low uh, there's no you know dramatic need for people to you know go in and you know hedge their risk and buy options or sell options so this is what this tells me is there's real demand for people to come in and express a view via options and it's a directional view right so and it's institutional players that are coming in to 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 do that which is obviously very promising for you know for for us right
0: yeah i mean i think that being said when when i first pulled this chart i would have thought okay the the highest volume months are going to be the ones on average that have the most that you know have the highest sort of realized volume when the market's moving around a lot and you actually look at the correlation um of the trailing one month realized vol versus our volumes and there's really no correlation at all which is a good thing because that's that's saying that the volumes are not dependent so much of what's happening in the spot market it's rather the market is just continuing to grow because more institutional players are actually entering, and more people are kind of are realizing that crypto options are actually a thing, and you can actually get access to these things, and the markets are tight.
2: Yeah, I mean, so what what you're basically saying is that as a percentage of the spot market, I guess we are continuing to grow, right? Right. Um, which is uh, which? Yeah, that's that's great news. Right. I mean that that. Yes. Means,
0: I mean, let's not let's not get over our skis here, right? I mean, like a big a big day on Deribit 24 hour option volumes between like Bitcoin and Ethereum is like one and a half billion dollars, right? Like that's, if you compare, if you compare that to, you know, just, I come from the equity options background, right? We would be like at JP Morgan, we'd be doing three times that size in a single trade of S and P options, right? It's like the the daily option volumes of Bitcoin and Ethereum combined are kind of like a mid tier sort of, you know, NASDAQ stock. But, you know, that being said, it is continuing to grow. And, you know, hopefully we start to see, uh, you know, as FTX kind of moves more into the background and we start to figure out some of these custody solutions uh, over time that David was mentioning, that we actually start to see a bit more, you know, exponential growth rather than, you know, kind of, I mean, you kind of look in the chart, right? It kind of looks like a, uh, you know, a logarithmic sort of growth, right? Instead of like an exponential sort of growth. But, you know, that being said, it still is a success in itself that this, that the volumes have continued to grow, you know, despite the fact, you know, FTX was only two months ago.
1: Yeah. I I think, um, there's a couple of things that are interesting for me. Actually, when I look at that chart, if you took out December, like you, you could pretty much draw a steady, like uptrend in terms of the growth. Um, and I kind of think, I think that speaks to a how, say, the the institutions are still coming into the space, which we're obviously very exposed to here. Um, and also, as as the pie itself kind of grows, um, I mean, to, to your point, not, not only is crypto as an asset class still very, very small um, compared to the traditional world. But then within that asset class, um, options is still very very small as well. So I think I think um, options is something like two percent of the open interest of uh, crypto derivatives. Whereas in, in the TradFi world, that's like twenty percent. So when you kind of think of us as a business, um, you know, and and the growth opportunity here, you've got the growth opportunity in terms of crypto is going to get more you know established and and will grow as an asset class in itself, and then the role that options plays within that is going to become much bigger as as it's used for as a use for speculation used for hedging you know they're, they're going to play a vital role in that and, and i think we're kind of seeing that this year already right um in what's coming through so i i think it's an exciting time and and actually going back to barcelona i think a lot of the conversations we had around that um i mean everything in crypto is on like hyper mode right we, we kind of we kind of relive in like the the evolution of trad that went on over decades, we're kind of doing it on like hyperspeed, including making all the same fuck ups and mistakes and, yeah. and what have you that uh that crypto made right, um uh, that that trad made, and um yeah so so I, I kind of I kind of don't think it's any different and like it's it's still so early um and it's the thing and when, when you're in the space I, I think it probably ages you quite a bit and it's like dog years um in terms of working in crypto but it is still so early um and yeah there's you know there's, there's some big trad fire guys that are just kind of sniffing around the space i mean the regulators still don't know what they're doing uh around it so yeah i i, I kind of it always takes me back to um i think it was a bill gates uh quote that uh you know most people um uh what's the saying but most people um you know, achieve less than they, they think they're going to in a year, but, but tend to underachieve on a 10-year time frame. Um, and I, I think that's crypto. Like, even those are the most optimistic in the space, we kind of all get a little bit carried away in terms of where we think things will be in a year but I think we pr- probably underestimate where we'll be in 10 so it's kind of like everything needs a little bit of patience but it's it's kind of stepping back and remembering we're super super early in this game um, and there's so much growth to come so much money to come into the space and and you, you're starting to see that reflect in, in some of the in some of the charts and some of the the flows certainly I think that we're seeing
0: yeah yeah absolutely and I mean I would say block option volumes tends to be like a fairly decent proxy in terms of institutional participation because as we mentioned right in order to be able to do a block trade you need to have sufficient capital to do so right you need to be able to meet the contract sizes of 25 bitcoin or 250 ethereum and right so if i just go to this next chart here and um yeah, ignore ignore the title here. This shouldn't that shouldn't say multi-leg versus single leg option block flows. This is this is rather just the market share over time of blocks of option block volumes relative to the total uh option volumes that are trading on Deribit, right? So if we look back in 2019 of August for BTC, you know, that number, um, so that would be that orange line, block percentage of total notional, only 20% of the trades that we're going through were block trades, right? Fast forward January, 2023, now 40% or February, 2023, 40% of all the trades that are going through now are blocks. And Ethereum, it's showing a very similar picture of this long-term growth where in Q3, 2019, we were at 15%. And then in Q in then by Q four 2022, we are at thirty percent, right? So even like we all agree that more institutions as you know the custody issues and regulation hopefully get sorted out, that more institutions are going to enter. But you know that being said, you know, the institutions already have been entering. I mean, as I said, this is kind of a, that this is kind of a proxy for the amount of institutional involvement in this space and it's kind of double its proportion of the pie has doubled uh, in in a couple years right so like I my opinion is like okay, so you have this growing institutional participation that we talked about but you know at the same time, We've also have a lot, a lot more improved liquidity. And in our quarterly report, I would, I would love to be able to report on some of these stats, right? We, we've had this entry of more and more market makers that are enhancing the capacity for institutional takers to come in and trade these big block sizes at tighter bid offer spreads, right? And then also, I, I, would, I would also say that Deribit has done us a solid as well. Because I mean, even when I got here, like the fees that you were paying in order to do a block trade were like were insane, right? Like if you're you're telling me that if I want to do a call fly structure that is effectively four legs, right, one by two by one, you're telling me that I need to pay you know three basis points of fees on every one of those legs. Well, I mean, so many. My point is, so many of these trades were just so non-economic due to the fee structure, and now we you have lower fees. So Deribit reduced the fees for multi-leg option strategies that com- combines legs that are trading in the opposite direction. So like if I'm trading a call spread for example, I would get fee netting between the long and the short leg, but if I were to trade like a straddle or a strangle, I would not I would not get that discount. But, you know, that that being said, it's it's come a lot of way, we are come a lot of ways, right? Like yeah, the growing institutional participation, better liquidity, you know, spots moving around, lower fees. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are that are leading to this, but it's it's been a great story so far.
2: Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think I think one one important point of note here is that the blue line is the block percentage of the total premium, right? Mm. So it's very easy to say like blocks as a percentage of total notional because but that notional is maybe irrelevant, right? I mean, it might be a super one delta option, or like a, like a fifty delta option, which is real, right? And yeah. you can see this is this is sixty percent of BTC blocks, um, you know, in by total premium. So that means it's mm. real, real options that people are buying. It's not just wings, you know, lottery tickets that are people buying. Again, pointing to the fact that it's real, you know, real players who are coming in and you know trading this. So institutions, yeah. yeah, right. And just to ex- ex-
0: explain what what Sohan's saying, so when you calculate like notional of, of an option trade effectively you do you're just taking the number of contracts times the current you know bitcoin or ethereum reference price it doesn't account for you know the moneyness of the option or the amount of premium that's being paid you know if i trade when you just look at no total notional a Ethereum 5,000 strike call is going to have the same notional as a Ethereum 1,700 call. So that's why we included this blue line as well. Be like, okay, look, this isn't just like a bunch of wingy option volumes are going through.
1: This
2: is actually real risk that is going through.
1: All righty. Yeah, that's huge. Let's move on.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I I can, you know, briefly mention that. Briefly mention this. I mean, if you so if you do if you look at th- this, is kind of just like another proxy for institutional involvement um, versus retail. I, I would say it's fair to say that retail is going to be much more likely to trade single-legged options, you know, rather than multi-leg, right? Retail is just generally scared going short options, right? Even even if you're just like, trading a call spread, right? People are like, oh, like, uh, uh, you know, people just get, get a bit nervous, right? As opposed to institutions that, you know, are doing multi-leg strategies all the time, right? And you can basically look, so the green in that this left chart has just continued to shrink while the blue has continued to increase. So that blue is the multi-leg proportion and then that green is that single leg proportion. So you can kind of really tell that towards like, The end of Q4 2021, this is what kind of really when the institutions really started to enter. And you can, you can see that in the right chart as well. This is basically just the multi-leg option blocks per, as a percentage of notional, which was 30% in December 2021, and it just completely skyrocketed. Now we're at this steady steady state or so where about you know, two-thirds to, to three-quarters of the volume that is traded is coming in the form of multi-leg block options
2: yeah and and the fee reduction obviously has a, a lot to do with this as well yes right? because you know it, like the moment um you know the, the exchange changes it to make it easier to do multi-legs as and don't get charged on the second leg almost everyone is like well now it makes sense to do a call spread right mm-hmm. before it was like well i don't want to pay twice the fees so i'll just do one and worst comes to us i'll do this i'll do the next leg right
0: right i mean i think the, like the next big step for this market is the tied up delta hedge trading right i mean like so you came you came from fx right like trading delta hedge i would imagine was pretty commonplace right
2: yeah i mean so the market standard in almost all markets it yeah. is you know if you're, if you're a vol trader you make a vol price so you 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 have a delta hedge you don't care about the delta and then that's it um but uh for some reason and uh crypto has started off as a as a with you know like uh, with delta risk um and it, it will it will change it will change over time because you know like I, I noticed many times two of our dealers are dealing together and both of them are clearing their delta at the same time right in in the yeah. open market they, they trade yeah. live face <laughs> each other and then they clear the delta themselves um which it's yeah it, it, as you said it's just a sign of a mar- market which is gradually getting more mature like you know, Paradigm didn't have the ability to do delta hedged, uh, you know, like options, you know, until until about a a, a year ago. Um, so it's just gradually the market will will get better at this. I feel.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of it too, though, is like so when when you trade on Deribit, you can't cross versus spot, right? You need a cross versus the perp or the future. And I mean, nothing nothing gets Deribit. We love them, but like the liquidity of the perp in the future on Deribit versus the liquidity of the perp or the future on Binance is just completely night and day, right? If I if I get delivered this delta in the form of a derivative perp or future, well, I need to be able to manage this thing. And the reality is there's a lot of cases where if I were to trade like OCO, a an option structure live, not versus Delta. In that same option structure versus delta, I would get a tighter price on the live versus <laughs> versus the you know the delta exchange, right? That coming from you know equity, like that, that is just complete craziness to me, right? That, that this is that this is a thing, um, and who knows? Maybe as more liquidity comes onto Darabain and the perps, or we kind of figure out this whole like cross more this whole cross margin thing. Right? Like, imagine if you could trade a derivative option versus a Binance Perk, right? Yeah. If you can do then- that, you deliver them Delta that you can actually trade, or, you know, deliver or the or like a Binance, you know, Bitcoin spot, then I think the market gets a lot tighter.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's actually it's actually one of the main reasons why I, I feel there is um, you know that there, there is room for another exchange player to come in as an options exchange, right? Like so, like we have you know for example, Bybit, right? Um, that they, they are for they are able to. They have a they have a more liquid futures uh, you know futures market absolutely right. So if you had something where you know even if you don't have to do like right now people are doing cross exchange. I completely agree with that right. Like where somebody trades on Deribit, then they look at Deribit future. Uh, it's too it's too expensive. I'll head somewhere else, right? right? And then his counterpart is also doing the same thing, right? Uh, if there's one exchange where you can do everything, um, that that would materially you know save uh, save the liquidity um, you know off the of the market. Um, actually, I think I think that that might be the, you know, the the thing that we we are yet to see, right, which is so you start merging the delta market, uh, a liquid delta market with the options market that could that could really cause this to really roof.
1: Right. What, what, what you need, what you need is like a, a liquidity network that's settlement agnostic that you could do all of that in one place and then Gosh. just sell it on <laughs> Oh my God, Jesus. I see, I see,
2: I see. <laughs>
1: oh, here yeah. we are, paradigm.
0: If you're an institutional investor who's like, or, you know, fund manager, that's a running a vol strategy in equity or FX, right? Who's used to doing everything Delta Hedge. And then you kind of realize that you're coming into here and you're introducing a lot of the slippage risk and you know the, the cross margin implications of managing your delta and, and your, your option risk on different exchanges. Well, that's that's kind of something you know that would cause that fund manager to be like, eh, maybe this market isn't ready yet. Maybe we'll revisit when we can actually, when I can actually somewhat efficiently trade my fall strategy, right? Mm for for me that's kind of like the next step of where where this goes but like i mean as a paradigm we, we're kind of the ones responsible for figuring out this problem so we'll get there
1: we will get there we will get there
0: yeah and then i'll just finish on this so this is this is a cool chart right so th- this is when our block option volumes are the highest Right. So the below chart shows crypto block volumes by the hour of the day and the day of the week. Right? So the hours of the day are divided into these eight blocks uh, in, use, in UTC time, you know, zero to three UTC, three to six, six to nine, so on and so forth. And then each colored bar represents a different day of the week. Right. So, on, so Monday is yellow, you know, Friday is orange. And there's, there's some pretty cool things to like interpret from this. And this is something that we're going to include in our, uh, and include our report in our quarterly report. Like imagine if you're you're a market maker and you're like, Hmm, I want to market make on paradigm. What? And because of the nature of crypto, I need to have a global business and may, maybe I'm located, you know, in, you know, Asia or in Europe. When are the times of days that I need to be focusing the most in order to actually get the most volume? And this data is is actually pretty enlightening, right? So the option block volume, it tends to follow this general trend of increasing throughout the UTC day, but it peaks around 12 to 15 UTC. I believe that's that's 8 a.m. New York time to 11 a.m. New York time. Right? So that, that's, when the, that's when the volumes of crypto option blocks are peaking. And then it gradually, and then you get some activity as well in the afternoon of the US, but then it gradually decreases into the end of the US, the US day. And then the highest activity buckets are actually Tuesdays and Wednesdays during this 12 to 15 UTC bucket. And I found it, I found it pretty interesting. If you were to ask me before pulling this data, when are the option volumes, what day of the week are option volumes the largest, I would be like, oh, I would, I would imagine it's probably, you know, Thursday into Friday because that's when the option expiries are. And I mean, we're kind of splitting hairs here, right? Because Wednesday, Thursday, Friday volumes are kind of all similar, but I, I found it surprising that Wednesdays are actually the busiest days in, ter- in terms of option volumes. Is is that is
1: there is Wednesday a big data day, David? I guess uh, it's when when the Fed always is and Fed minutes. Oh, you're right. Um, but but then again, that's not consistent, right? Throughout um, you know throughout a month, that's just one day, right? Um, that's interesting as well. I, I think time wise, at seven till nine, uh, so like twelve to fifteen is seven till nine New York time. So that that in my head kind of makes sense because. Uh, I know crypto is twenty four seven, but if you think from the tradfi world, most traders sort of start the day at seven o'clock. Um, US arriving at seven, seven till nine, putting on positions, putting on risk. That kind of makes yeah. sense to me. Yeah,
2: yeah. so yeah. if you look at FX, it kind of looks exactly the same because FX is also a global market, right? So basically, when New York walks in, is the is the is the most liquid time because New York is there, London's there, and the stragglers in Asia are also there right yeah. so you, you you kind of get everyone together um what what's what to me is most interesting here is that um you know like a many many people in asia are contributing to this this volume and they're not trading in asia morning right like that if, if you look here they i mm-hmm. mean asia morning is basically zero to you know nine right i mean that that's the asia morning afternoon um that that time is yeah like the, those guys are waking up and not doing anything. And then they're trading when the market is more liquid, which is, you know, when US is here, when um when London's in. Um so yeah, it's, it's very similar to effects, effects I feel um yeah. in, in, in behavior.
1: I'd I'd love to know as well how I mean I can kind of infer, I imagine, but like how that impact spreads as well. Like, so obviously those peak liquidity moments, the spread's much tighter, a lot more liquidity. Which again might make you think in terms of if you're running some kind of ARB strategy, is actually you want you want to be operating in the wings of that chart. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean uh,
0: this report, right? We 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 should overlay this data with the bid offer spread and like the distance in which trades that are going up on Paradigm are clearing from their mark fair value over that time to see if it actually is the case that I mean more volume you would expect more liquidity,
2: but you know, let's back it up with the data.
1: I think that'd be pretty interesting. Yeah, it'd be cool. Uh, all so right, right. Yeah, and no, no real surprise crazy. in
2: the weekend being uh, dead, right? I mean, that's that's a that's 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 a pretty standard um, a standard graph. But I'm still surprised by the fact that you know Monday is, I mean, it's not that different from Saturday, right? No. It's, no, it's like I mean, it's, it's two, two times or whatever, but so it's still there. There, there are still prices being made. Um, it's just, um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's obviously less. Yeah,
0: and if you if you're a market maker watching this and you don't want to be on on the weekends, the highest volumes on the weekends are observed on. I think it looks like Saturdays from twelve to fifteen UTC. So if you're if you're looking to be active for three hours over the course of your weekends and and log on to start trading, I mean, albeit like it's still very small. That's probably where you want to focus your time if you're if you're trying to take a break from um,
2: your weekend boozing.
1: <laughs> I, I I'm surprised. Um, I thought Monday would be higher actually. Um, just because again, like like thinking back to you know, from my FX days, like Monday people come in. Uh, either something's gone on, on the weekend, so you kind of reacting to that, or you're adjusting positions or, or pulling on positions that things that you like for the week. Uh, I would have thought Monday might have been a bit higher volumes. So that, that's that's quite... yeah. I mean, I, I think I
2: think I think that, that I had the exact same reaction, and I think it's tied into the fact that the weekend is kind of not zero, right? So basically, yeah. you know, we come in on Monday, we start dealing with all the other guys come back. Even though it's twenty four seven, it's not really twenty four seven. There's no liquidity on the weekend, so you come in, you start dealing on Monday, but here it's kind of getting split across that Monday flow is getting split across Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, right? Right. So, and uh, don't get me wrong, there, there are days, like, I, I remember
0: there was there was one day, I think June, June of last year, remember we had like that big rally b- before the merge in the summer, where I logged on on Saturday and like Ethereum was up 17%. I was like, oh my God. And that day <laughs> felt like, you know, a Wednesday during that 12 to 15 UTC bucket. Right? So there are days when there are things going on, you know, a big set of news where crypto is just going to react right away and the volumes are going to come in right away you know, due to the fact that you actually have some liquidity on the weekends. So I think that's why Monday's not you know, not nearly as high. But I, I know, I know you've, you've, you've been doubling down on your views and you've been right for, for a long time, but <laughs> yeah. dude, this, this rate market's kind of nasty.
1: Yeah, I, I must admit, so obviously I've been like, pretty balled up since mid-December, early December, um, you know, talking about this changing sort of macro dynamic as we transition from a world where, you know, Fed Fed ran the most aggressive hiking cycle in, in recorded history to coming into the pause and, and thinking that we'll start to position ahead of that. And then tying that in with the sort of peak inflation type narrative, dollar starts to sell off like about end of october early november time which which i thought was a bit of a tell so yeah so and and obviously we had our own stories within crypto right uh with ftx blowing up mm-hmm. um, and everything that came with that but i kind of felt that a lot of the bad news was in you know coming into this new year um you know we well i, I certainly i think we said back in december that I, I felt the lows were in which is always a dangerous thing to say um well but, you're right but look, yeah. Yeah. Well, let, let's see. Right. Um, but, but yeah, so so that, that sort of thematic was playing out pretty well. Um, I've kind of spoken before about within my, to, to try and simplify my macro framework, uh, where we look at sort of rates, liquidity, dollar risk, and then sort of flows and positioning. And that's kind of how I try and look at the world. Um, and sort of rates had peaked and we're rolling over, which was like a big tick. Um, we spoke about reasons why i think liquidity was kind of at its like tightest levels if you like mm. um the dollar was rolling over so that was another big tick um risk like it was settling down and then sort of flows and position in the market was was all pretty bearish so you had that kind of nice stars aligned moment um that kind of precedes uh, a nice rally which which we've kind of seen so now the now the question it becomes, you know, where are we now in in that in that sort of framework? Um, so yeah, the the rates move is worrying me uh, quite a bit. So we've had a, a sort of huge um, sort of rates repriced um, over the last couple of weeks in response to better data. Um, what's quite interesting in that um, is. <laughs> You kind of getting Twitter arguments with people about, you know, markets are going to sell off because of recession and there's me going, look, it's about rates and liquidity. We're a function of rates and liquidity. Um, and here we are kind of under the pressure in equities after a good rally, because the data's getting better. <laughs> not because it's not because it's getting worse. The, yeah. the worry now is that the data is going to keep the Fed engaged and keep hiking. So we, we've seen, a, we've seen a super sort of sharp uh, repricing rates um, I think we're now sort of pricing a terminal rate above three point five point three percent. That was sub five just a couple of weeks ago. So in rates world, that's that's pretty pretty huge. Uh, yeah. And we and we had sort of fifty bips of cuts uh, priced by the end of the year from the peak, and now that's pretty much nothing. Um, so you, you could kind of argue that maybe the market, the rates markets, caught up with where the Fed has said they're going to be um one one thing i will say is i kind of i kind of think there's been a bit of an overreaction uh to a few good data points january data can be quite uh messy in terms of there's lots of seasonal adjustments that get made and we've had quite an unseasonably warm january as well so when you kind of make any seasonal adjustments because normally january's cold and no one goes out you know shopping and all this stuff so they make adjustments to try and you know like uh kind of keep keep an underlying track of where the data would be if it wasn't for that so hence when you throw in a warm january that that kind of messes with the data but I, I don't want to be i don't want to be that guy that's going oh, i don't believe the data because uh, we have to take what's what's in front of us right so clearly we've had um a, a decent run of data be it from nfp be it from re- retail sales um so that's kind of spooked everyone into thinking, right, we're not seeing that level of demand destruction that the Fed effectively wants yeah, to see. Yeah, I mean, just look at
0: the PMIs yesterday, right? What would we print? The US PMIs at 50 and a half versus a 47.2 expectation. That's the highest reading since
1: June. Right? What's weird? Yeah, and what's weird, it's kind of gone, the trend of data was all going one way and everything was pointing to like contractionary PMIs and then everywhere, not just in the US, but like we had really yeah. strong numbers out of the UK. So it kind of makes me question it a little bit, um, and uh, you know it'll be interesting to see whether that sustains. My feeling is it won't, and we'll we'll revert back to the trend of, of sort of weaker data prints. Um, but nonetheless, that 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 is what it is. So we've had this pretty sharp repricing in rates um, that, all things equal, um, should have absolutely hammered risk and should have hammered crypto, um, and it hasn't. So in, in the sort of most recent newsletter um that actually came out today, um again, macro macro is never about one thing and it's trying to think about it within the framework and there's lots of moving yeah. parts. I think the other big thing that 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 is, is offsetting it is liquidity. Um so I spoke before that liquidity is kind of getting easier. So the the big sort of four central banks, if you've got the Feds, uh, the ECB, Bank of Japan, and people's bank of china their net balance sheets are starting to increase because basically china and bank of japan are injecting a lot of liquidity and expanding their balance sheet and it's outpacing the contraction that you're seeing at the fed and the ecb also in the us we have um we have this debt ceiling which means uh, the us treasury are having to draw down on their the tga the treasury general account balance at, at the fed so effectively Without getting too uh, technical about it, effectively, when they're building that up, they're issuing bonds, taking liquidity out of the market, and then they're putting keeping their cash at the Fed. Now they can't issue new debt because they've hit their debt ceiling. They're now using to base. They're needing to go and tap that cash reserve at the Fed. So effectively, they're injecting that back into the market. So you've got that as a massive offset to uh, to QT. Plus, mm. you've got the Bank of China. Um, and Bank of Japan expanded balance sheets. On Friday, um, we had the largest ever cash injection from the PBOC on their seven-day repo. Uh, So net, they injected 632 billion yuan into the market. So that's huge, right? Um, Today, we had uh, Bank of Japan announce an emergency uh, bond buying operation as their 10-year yields started to push past the um, half-bip sort of upper limit that they have. So so those two big central banks are actively engaged still basically in in pumping liquidity out there. So it's a huge offset um, to to the sort of tightening that you're seeing from the Fed and the ECB. And again, you know, if we have functional rates and liquidity, liquidity has got a lot easier. And it's interesting for me that Bitcoin is kind of leading the rally in crypto because if you're kind of playing that pure liquidity play, um, then then kind of Bitcoin for me is, is like the ultimate kind of play on that. And I I kind of think that's why Bitcoin's outperforming ETH um, and and why that's kind of dominating. So essentially, long story short, rates is a massive concern for me. uh, But I think liquidity levels are still pretty high. And I think that's keeping us supported. Um, I I still think from that core thematic, and I've spoken before, like macro themes play out over a long time. And everyone wants to jump from data point to data point. I still think we're we're nearing a pause and I think that's massive for a market so I don't think 2023 is going to be 2022 and for, for that reason I still think the lows are in like my worry would be if if we see inflation sort of turn higher um and then the fed have to actually properly <clears throat> engage if, if if that starts to happen and then and then look, all, all bets are off but you know, there's not, that that inflation data the other day still still leans points to the fact that inflation's topped out and peaked out. And in fact, if you excluded uh, shelter, which we know is lagging and is set to come a lot lower and follow sort of house prices lower.
0: But I don't um, think it's really so much a question. I, I think people agree that it's probably peaked. I, I think more so the question is, is it going to decrease as quick
1: quickly as, enough? Yeah.
0: As, the, yeah, as the rates are pricing right. Like if we we just gradually kind of come into this like you know four percent inflation year over year well if that's the case then that pause isn't coming and then we're kind of back to this 2022 status quo where they need to continue to raise and which is going to hurt risk
1: yeah but like like rates have changed matter as well joe right so there's a big difference between like I mean, when you keep getting 75 bips come at you every month, like that's a lot to adjust to. And
2: mm-hmm. um, I
1: think, as we said before, right, crypto ate shit first, right? Um, and got absolute <laughs> smash. And and you, you could argue kind of started to price that, um, again, that that sort of change in macro dynamic into that really sharp sort of tightening cycle. And, if, and in fact, you know, if you look at crypto, kind of peaked out in, in November 2021 when uh, Powell sort of dropped the, the phrase sort of transitory. Um the thing that I still keep banging on about um is Powell now at his last two outings has said um that the disinflationary process has begun. And I don't believe he uses like those words just sort of flippantly. Um I I, I think the Fed are looking at things and going, look, we we've we've probably done enough um yes they, they still want to maintain credibility and if the data stays strong they can still keep going another 25 another 25 but i also think they appreciate there's lag uh, you know lagged effect of their policy um and they're comfortable that we're starting to move lower now again does it come quickly enough you know that that's at the moment the answer to that is, is potentially no uh, which is why the markets have repriced so, mm-hmm. so looking at uh, looking at things right here, right now, um, I, I actually think crypto trades like super well, given the rates move, I, I would have thought potentially we lower, yeah. but I say I, I think I think liquidity is offsetting that I still think we spoke before about positioning, I still think market came into this year, under position risk generally. Um, mm-hmm. And we've had a huge move. So the left chasing performance. So I still kind of think that's gonna gonna still, still have people sat there on the bid. And I think we've seen that pretty much. I know we've seen a little bit more sort of bearish flows, certainly in the front end. Um, but but we're still seeing people put on some topside, right? Um, yeah, to upside, to top side.
0: upside at this point continue continues to really dominate the narrative. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of June June and then short dated, um, you know, upside convexity plays like Elvis, this this Feb twenty six thousand strike over the past week traded eighty five hundred times on Paradigm. Yeah. <laughs> Right. I mean, so yes, I mean, looking at the open interest, some of these were like closeouts of of positions that were put on previously, but net, net, you know, people people are 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 adding to the upside, and I think a s- macro aside, I mean, you look at what the what really sparked the big rally last week, right? It was it was all those Mr. Mr. Sohan, you're Mr. Hong Kong, right? The uh, <laughs> all those all those Twitter rumors or that are start starting to seem like they're being uh, validated that, you know, Hong Kong could potentially be the next, you know, bigger crypto hub, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, it's it's honestly, it's great news, right? It's great news. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I live there and it's really suffered over the last three years, not just for crypto, but for TreadFi. People have left, the, uh, left Hong Kong to go to Singapore or Dubai just because it had a big quarantine and um you know like it wasn't friendly you know the regulation wasn't friendly especially on crypto um so they came out with a regulation which basically said um retail are likely to be able to trade crypto only the top coins but uh likely by June and now we're going to yeah they, they said top top coins um and the rule was that you had to have them added to at least two indices um mm-hmm. so yeah it's probably going to be btc eth maybe maybe uh maybe another one or two uh but then i, th- I think it's more like they're, they're willing to work with people so this is not actual rule yet it's a consultation so that i like, look let's chat to the major players let's uh, decide by the 31st of march you know what we should do and then by the first of june we'll put it in place wow. so i think the the sign for the market i mean i, I was surprised by the size of the rally and then i was like well why am i surprised right because Hong kong is a fairly like small place but it's a barometer for china right so i mean hong kong is um you know like it's an experiment right like in fx like for example yeah. hong kong had the deliverable renminbi uh, as in hong kong and that was the test right like to see if the capital account can be opened up etc so um i completely think it's a test um and they're willing to work with people and see how it goes if it goes wrong, so be it, right? It's only Hong Kong. If it goes right, it means mainland could be could be in play, right? Uh, and we're talking multi-years, but I mean, it, it's a very drastic change to two years ago where, you know, they single-handedly cr- caused like, you know, like a 50% crash in Bitcoin, right? Um, so yeah, um, yeah, but I think it's great news. And I think my takeaway from what David is saying is, like there's a there's a lot of these external factors like these regulatory you know stories that you know can happen and it's it's great news there's a big macro like uncertainty like you know whether this inflation is you know peaked or not i'm still shocked the option market is realizing like realizing and uh, realized and implied is that low right like mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean i i i completely understand why it doesn't matter what direction you think it's gonna happen like just buy some right <laughs> Right. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff that could play out in your favor, right? I mean, regulation, macro, you know, random, random stories, you know, the, the Shanghai upgrade, you know, like, <laughs> etc.
1: I, I think I think that's why you, you keep seeing people come in and buy it at the, the top side. And it's not like we we think a lot of people are like directional, but there's also like, um, you know, probability adjusted kind of risk reward and again like if you're if you're a crypto fund you know you you can't not have that exposure to the upside and and the risk that actually happens right and and flies so you you have to own some of this stuff because yeah just you know something comes out and 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 as as we know like you know crypto can move just as rapidly to the top side as it as it does to the downside so so yeah there's there's a lot there's a lot of positive stuff out there at the moment one of the other things as well is that you know, we, we had a lot of fud around the SEC and Gensler coming out, and you know, going after stake in and and all that stuff. And actually, like it wasn't that long ago, right? That would that would have that would have been a good ten percent sell off. Um, and yet, crypto kind of didn't blink. And then actually, the sharper rally was on the the Hong Kong story. Um, so it just shows me that sentiments changed. Um, there's been a, a pretty substantial sentiment shift towards this space. Um, it kind of feels like it's had a, a lot of bad news thrown at it. It survived, it's kind of, uh, it's weathered that storm. And now sentiment's turning quite positive. Also as well, I, I think I, I think there's kind of this sense that look, the, the SEC are gonna do what they're gonna do. And maybe crypto just builds outside of the US and kind of the Hong Kong story kind of fed nice into that. Like, do you know what? We, we can have maybe crypto builds outside of that. Now, the US would be stupid if they let that happen. But nonetheless, that's kind of feels like the route that they're going at the moment, potentially, um, to allow you know everyone else to embrace it and, and build around it. Um, yeah, the Hong Kong announcement was quite
0: timely, right? Like it's been it's been very clear over the over the past two months that the SEC has been tightening its grip around around crypto, and then it kind of it got really really bad, of course, with with Kraken. And then, oh, OK, then Hong Kong comes out and, you know, smells the blood in the water, sort of saves the day. And it's pretty interesting. I mean, where, where are most of our upside flows like coming from? They're they're coming from Asia, guys, guys that are that are over there like, in this and like, you know, boots on the ground and kind of see what's happening. And that center of gravity that certainly shifted to the West. After the Bitcoin mining got banned, is now sh- shifting back towards
1: the east. It, it was quite funny. So I was in Barcelona, and um, I think it was on the Wednesday night, wasn't it? And, and Bitcoin kind of broke higher, um, and I, I couldn't see. And I was looking to see like, what's, was there something out from the Fed, maybe, or you know, <laughs> what, what was driving it? And there was nothing really obvious, sort of driving it. And then a client actually messaged me saying, "Are you seeing these moves? Like, do you know what's behind it?" And, and at the time, I'm in some Sky Lounge bar in Barcelona. I'm like, I don't know, but like, I've been drinking sangria. Every sangria I have, it seems to go up. <laughs> and he was like, keep going, keep going. <laughs>
2: Actually, to be honest, it happened in the middle of the night for me, right? Like, um, and, uh, you know, I woke up, I was like, what, what, is, what is causing this? And I read the headline and I was like, oh, that headline. It can't be that headline. Surely it can't be that headline. And then mm-hmm. I was like, wait. Uh, no, you gotta, you gotta think about it, right? Like it's it's not like a small isolated place, right? You gotta think about it as an experiment for the future. So um, yeah, I, I guess that's that that explains the rally. <laughs> yeah. Right.
1: But but it, it say it's interesting and like bringing it back to the macro, say given the rates move, which which I think is ugly, um, you know, crypto, crypto trades pretty, pretty well, like considering that um the pullback after a decent move. And again, like knock on wood here, I guess, but like the, the pullback after a decent move has been pretty um, pretty shallow. So I think the price action still looks really constructive. And I'm more cautious here than I was coming into the year, just given this rates move. But I, st- I still think liquidity is high. Um, I, I also question... Um, yeah it, it feels to me i've said before like joe i know we have spoken about this like the market's still trading that 2022 playbook and i feel it's like the market's psychologically scarred by what went on in 2022 so mm. it's it, it's interesting to me how quickly it's gone into this panic about oh, the sell bonds the fed are gonna have to hike rates in you know for uh into infinity and beyond um and they've kind of jumped on that and and i, I just feel it's a little bit overdone um and if rates if rates top out here, then then I think the tailwinds of liquidity, this positive sentiment, then we can t- take that next leg higher. So I'm still pretty positive um, that that we we're actually going to sort of take a next leg higher. But we do need rates to calm down. The dollar the dollar kind of peaked out on Friday, um, so I think that's helping things as well. If if the dollar starts to ramp up again, that's another part of the framework that that's breaking down. That you start to get a little bit more bearish. But uh, but that that seems to have kind of topped out on friday um the the other thing um, and if I can share a chart um yeah, sure. I, I always say, I always say oils um, oils quite important um, <laughs> as a macro sort of factor of input um, let me see if I can work out how to share this chart um, uh, so you see in this chart of uh of um so this is oil against uh, five year break even inflation and like so so oil for me again as as a part of a macro framework is is quite an important input right just given the importance in the world of, of oil uh often has sort of tight correlations with the dollar but it also is a big sort of driver of inflation expectations right for obvious reasons mm. oil goes up inflation goes right. up um and 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 typically would lead inflation expectations um so if you look like the general sort of direction of of this as as kind of oil come off we start to see inflation expectations fall and oil bounces again inflation expectations go up so we we started to see um oil oil starting to come lower again Oil, oil looks for me like it's gonna absolutely like tank like the price action looks awful um but you start to see oil come lower again but yet Inflation expectations keep going higher, and actually, if you look when inflation expectations bottomed here around the 18th of Jan, that's when uh, U.S. yields topped out. So, inflation expectations—if you overlay 10-year yields with this—they mm-hmm. tend to track pretty nicely as well. So, right. the reason why—the reason why I think uh, yields are probably going to top out—and we have got the Fed minutes later—and maybe uh, uh, that they—they they completely uh, embarrassed me, but—but but again, all, all things equal, just looking at this 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 move in, in inflation expectations looks like it's completely overshot. And I think that's a market that's psychologically scarred by by 2022 and the inflation narrative, the fed hiking rates. And so you're see in a market price in this this sort of rampant inflation again, that's kind of going against what 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 certainly what oil would suggest. And I kind of think this is going to settle down and catch back down to where where oil's trading. Uh, so then there's inflation expectations settle back down, because I think they've got carried away of themselves after a few good bits of data. Um, mm-hmm. Inflation expectations settle down, catch back down to oil, then I think you see yields come back down. Um, and then that's when dollar probably come back lower quite a bit. Um, and then like the, that, that liquidity, that positive liquidity pulse that we've been talking about starts to take over and that's when i think you'll see bitcoin sort of blow through the the, the resistance up through 25k and, and beyond and and ultimately i i think we'll we'll kind of sort of push towards 30k bitcoin and 2000 eth but you, i think if yeah we just need to see this rate sort of pull over and i'm looking at this chart to see will inflation expectations turn back lower and i think if oil continues to break down I just really struggle to see how you keep pricing in higher inflation when oil, which is so sort of such a fundamental input, um, is is breaking down. So I'm kind of looking at this. I'm expecting inflation to roll back over and and certainly inflation expectations to fall, which will then pull yields lower. And I I think that that'll perhaps um, sort of take the the sort of stranglehold off of crypto. That's kind of just sort of uh, creating that resistance at the moment. So I I think that's quite an interesting chart as well to keep an eye on
0: right yeah uh, i guess i guess my the last point because we're starting to run run a little bit over here is i mean i totally agree with you around around the bitcoin narrative and i think there's i think there's a reason why there hasn't been as much euphoria around ethereum and you know people a lot of people oh shanghai upgrade like oh that's a great thing because it means that like ethereum 2.0 is is going as planned but like Shanghai upgrade in terms of short-term price action is not a good thing, right? Like Ethereum has been one way, it's like literally if I'm, since I think it was the beacon chain, right? If I if I wanted to stake my Ethereum, well, th- my Ethereum was locked up unless I did it through, you know, Lido, which was kind of like the liquid staking, pro- staking protocol where I'd get the stake ETH and I'd, I'd be able to do that. But reality is two thirds of Ethereum that is currently staked is a liquid. Right, and if, if you look at there's some pretty good research around this that at current prices of Ethereum 1700, around 60% to two thirds of people that have staked their ETH are underwater, right? Because they were staking at 2500, 3000, right? And then yeah, and then of course you know there's people that you know had staked a lot earlier and definitely making money, but you could make this argument that there's this pent up withdrawal demand, right? That as soon as I'm able to get my money out, and of course the the Ethereum uh, withdrawals are subject to, to, I think something like 50,000 like, Ethereum per day. It's not like it's a rush for the exit sort of thing, it's gonna happen over time. Well, if there's this pent up withdrawal demand, and then for the foreseeable future, you just have all these net outflows of, of ETH of people just trying to get the heck out of this thing. Well, what's going to catch that? Well, it would need to be institutions coming in and being ready. But if there's that supply demand imbalance of, okay, if Shanghai upgrade happens, and then you have all this ETH supply that's coming from this, and you're not having institutions coming in and catching it, well, Ethereum's short term, I mean, I think we'd agree that long term the Shanghai upgrade is very good, right? Because in the the current state of Ethereum staking, the the percentage of current market value staked for Ethereum is very low compared to other other blockchains, because it's a a whole one it's one-way staking at this point. So we I think we agree long term it's great, but in terms of short term, this can be pretty nasty.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, it, I think we could do an entire podcast on on the Shanghai upgrade, to be honest. And I think that's a that's a great idea for know, next week if you have yeah. uh, you know, if you have nothing to talk about. <laughs> do, do, but Joe I mean, interesting
1: to me.
0: nothing. I know yeah. there's no set date in terms of where this is going to when this is going to happen. But I mean, I think everything everywhere I'm reading is telegraphing late March that this is going to happen. Yeah. There's nothing really being priced
2: there.
1: But, Joe, my, my, my actual thinking is the other way on the Shanghai upgrade. So, like, ETH is my biggest position, right? Um, sorry for any Bitcoin maxis watching this. But, um, but ETH is my biggest position. I've got a chunk of that staked because I've got a long-term view on, on this. And when I staked that uh, ETH, I knew it was locked up indefinitely, right, or for for a long time, Um and this this is right before we've even had the merge and what have you, um, you start locking it up and then you've got to wait for the Shanghai upgrade. So the the sort of mindset that would have locked that up is probably a long-term holder, I would say. And for what me, price the did chances... you lock
0: it up at? I think it depends on the price that you lock it up at. I would agree the people that are locking it up at five hundred dollars of ETH, yes, are probably the long-term holders. But the people that are locking it up at three thousand and who are deep underwater are going to have a higher propensity to sell than somebody that is, you know, in the
1: money on it. See, see, like the reason I think differently on that is because if ETH was say at ten thousand now, right, my my propensity to sell would be a lot higher because I'd be shit. That's going to be a lot of money for me, right? So, like like basically i i don't know if, if if you've kind of had it staked and you 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 were staking it at three thousand, whatever level that you were in at like you you've kind of you, you're massively underwater right are, are you going to bring that money out and go well let's just crystallize the loss or you go go do you know what it's been there let's, let's just leave it now and see what happens like mm. I, I kind of think there's that element and then and then offsetting that as well is the other flows of those that wanted to stake but didn't want to lose liquidity from staking i i want to have access to it if i need it will now go do you know what i can that's, tie that that's, up that's a
2: really good point actually that's that's a really good point because it actually opens up a, a whole different world of people who have liquid staking now available right right yeah yeah, I mean, yeah so i mean maybe that balance kind of um you know it isn't as bad as we think but also like i mean i i'm i'm the same way right like as in I, if I have an in the money, um, you know, instrument, I probably am less likely to sell. If I'm something which is down 50%, I'm very likely to sell. And in general, people in crypto have suffered in 2022, right? I mean, most people have lost a significant portion of their bags, right? So, I mean, I I would think the even the long term hodlers, they will have like more of a sell pressure. It's just whether, you know, there's new people who are coming in and it, you know, the, the, the chain is like now more safe. So, um, yeah, it's yeah. I, I think that's that's what's gonna define <laughs> define how yeah. it goes. But
0: I agree. Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah the, more, more safe. But like, I mean, Mister Rates over here. I mean, what what are Ethereum staking yields? What six <laughs> percent? I mean, compare compare that to to what you can get in a ten year Treasury, right? If, if I'm just looking at where I am on my on my risk spectrum. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I I believe in the whole thing. I'm I'm just trying to be the devil you know play devil's advocate here as he may be an institutional guy <laughs> uh, involved like oh i get 4% in treasury yield versus 6% staking it uh you know with this validator node where i don't know what the hell they're going to do
1: yeah fair that's fair the the the, the other thing i think with ETH that um might be holding it back a little bit relative to bitcoin is again gensler going after calling anything that 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 moves a security um from what I understand, Bitcoin is the only thing that he's kind of classified as a commodity. Mm. Um, So it's kind of like, I, I can understand people going, look, if, if I'm bullish crypto, I don't know what the SEC are going to do and I'm unsure around that. Then maybe Bitcoin is just a cleaner play at this moment. Um, So I, I do think that's hampering. And probably my, my biggest fear as, as an investor in, into Ethereum is, yeah, if he comes out and labels as a security tomorrow, what does that mean? Um, So you kind of sit there and look at that and go, well, yeah is it just easier to be holding bitcoin so i i I wonder how much that is playing into investor psychology as well
0: that's true i think that's a really good
2: point to end on